Now we turn to the purpose that we are gathered here, which is to open God's word. Let's uh, invite the Lord's presence. Dear Father in heaven, as we uh, turn to thy word now, at a, at a regular, at a set time, dear Father, uh, this time in the week that we've set aside specifically to gather and to, to worship thee, to sing praises, dear Father, we realize the main focus, the main event, dear Father, is thy presence here among us, thy speaking through thy word as we read it, dear Father, as we collectively as a congregation of believers, as we read this word, as we ponder on it, as we ask through thy spirit what thou wouldst have to say to us in reflection on what has happened this past week, in reflection on what we are currently going through in our lives, in uh, anticipation of the challenges that may be ahead, dear Father, we realize that we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, dear Father. We believe these words are contained in the covers of this book that we are about to open, dear Father. Help us to have minds that are open and attuned to thy presence this morning. Dear Father, bless us with the true blessing from above. That's why we're here, dear Father. Help us to strip away every, everything else, every other reason, every other distraction that would hinder from receiving that real, true blessing from above. We pray this in, in confidence, knowing that we have the petitions we have desired from thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For this morning's meditation, let's turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. This is speaking of Jesus. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. 
ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's now skip down to the 38th verse, verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. I've read to the end of the chapter. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Dear ones, as I stand before you this morning, I, I feel convicted to, to begin this meditation on the scripture that we've read with a confession. Uh, not to draw any attention to myself, but to um, confess the Lord and his sufficiency. My confession is that I feel very poor in spirit to be dividing God's word to his church. You may think, oh, it's just a group of people that we are familiar with, that we know very well, that gather here every Sunday. Maybe we sometimes maybe... Um, take each other for granted. It's just a group of people that, that we are used to, but this is a glorious group of people. Not because of any one of us that is specially gifted or, or uh, special in some way. It is glorious because we have taken the name upon us of Christ and because of Christ whose name we gather in. That's why this gathering is glorious and this is a glorious group of people. And so to, to divide God's word, the word of Jesus Christ to this glorious group of people uh, fills me with uh, a trembling and, and fear when I think of the picture of that man, Jesus Christ, the God, Jesus Christ, walking in revelations and the candlesticks representing the different churches, the seven churches that, that John was commanded to pen his letter to. This glorious figure walking in among his his churches and seeing and examining and looking at the lives of his followers, that picture fills me with fear and trembling as I realize now through the dividing of this word, this is what he is doing. He's walking among us now. This glorious Jesus who created everything, 
who was the instrument by which God created the worlds, he is now walking among us. And with the help of the Spirit, he will use this word to convict and to purify his church. That group of individuals, ordinary people, people that are maybe in the world's eyes of no account, that he will use to, that, he, that is his bride, that he is purifying and will present to himself one day when, all, when time is no more. So it is only by the help of, of Jesus Christ, by his spirit, that I am able to divide this word. And it is only by realizing that I myself am poor in spirit, I have nothing. Brothers and sisters, friends, I have nothing to give to you. I have a jumble of thoughts, maybe things that I've thought this week, oh, it would be good to share with uh, my brothers and sisters and friends. But there is no cohesiveness and no organization to that, no value to it, unless... Uh, I am now motivated by the Spirit of Christ. And so I solicit your prayers as, as I do that with the help of his Spirit. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, a familiar passage, I think, to anyone who's somewhat familiar with the Bible, familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Some people think that this sermon was maybe... Uh, um, a set sermon is something that Christ would have preached multiple times. We get a hint of that in, in Luke, the parallel passage in Luke, which is referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, that Christ repeated these messages because they needed to be heard, because there were no tape recorders, something you could play back a message and hear again what was said a short time ago. This Sermon on the Mount began, if you go back uh, to the previous chapter, just the, the final few verses of the previous chapter, it began with something that uh, marked Jesus' ministry throughout his three years and was served a purpose, a great purpose, to point to what he was speaking. And that was his healing, his, his miraculous healings. He did things that you or I, as educated as we may be or as skeptical as we may be in the scientific modern age, if it were to happen in our presence, we would be awestruck. We would, be, we would be dumbfounded. Maybe, maybe because we know the people or knew the people that were being healed. Can you imagine someone that you've known has had a disease for decades, maybe their whole life, that they've struggled with, that's been crippling, that has uh, had such a, an effect, and you can see it. You can see that cost as it's paid daily in... Uh, maybe even in strains on the family or, or, or difficult relationships or whatever it may be, seeing that cost of that, that real weight of that uh, pain of that disease and then having someone come along and remove that in an instant, in an amazing way. Just put yourself in those shoes of that person or the, that, those, the individuals, the families that maybe were not healed but saw this happening, saw this amazing, miraculous thing that was happening. And then... Take a step back from that and realize that Jesus didn't just come to do that. He didn't just come to heal people and make them better and give them a, a, some physical uh, comfort, heal them from their diseases. He came to, to speak a message of truth from God himself. His miracles were set up and done as a, a means to focus what he was saying. After having witnessed those great things, can you imagine now... He's going to speak the truth. What weight that would lead to that? 
what he was going to say, what importance that would lead to what he was going to say. Maybe we need to approach this chapter 5 in the same way. Knowing that there is someone, the person who's speaking this has all power on heaven and earth. This person has complete power over my life. He knows me completely inside and out. He knows what's afflicting me. In an instant, he could change the circumstances of my life. And now he's going to speak truth to me. He's going to speak the thing that he knows I need to hear the most. The Sermon on the Mount extends over several chapters. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, I believe. Ends in, in chapter 7, uh, at the end of chapter 7. And Jesus chooses to begin it with a series of blessings. Uh, we call them the Beatitudes. Uh, beatus in the Latin means blessed. And we often, in the modern parlance, parlance we uh, make that a little, a mnemonic, something to remember it by. We say it's the be attitudes. It's the things you have to be, the be attitudes. But really, ultimately, it's the blessings. It's the, the list of what is valued in God's kingdom, the things that are important to God, the things that when he looks at you, the things he's telling you, this is important, this is important, and this is important. He gives a, a list so you can get the idea. So you can see what matters in his kingdom, what is important to him, the one who knows you completely and knows what's best for you and loves you. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Lest you get an idea that this was just his disciples he was speaking to, I think it was to a wider audience, as the end of chapter 7 says that, when it came to pass, when Jesus had edited these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It was a wider audience, and maybe if it was just speaking to his disciples who then spread this message to a larger audience, I'm not sure, but he intended it to speak it to everyone. This message is not an explanation in and of itself, of the way of salvation. And I say that with a, a qualification. The way of salvation is Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. It was the thing that he was going to do at the end of his ministry. That is the way of salvation. As we believe on that, we are transformed. This is the roadmap, the values standard for those that have embraced Christ. Those that have believed on him. They are the ones that can take this word understand it, believe it, and be transformed by it. You who have not embraced Christ, do not believe in what he did on the cross, do not believe in the power of his resurrection, you may read these things and think this is, uh, this is like just a law, a higher law. This is like a, a Mosaic Law 2.0, as it were. That Christ is just taking the things in the Old Testament and making them harder and more difficult and making it more as it were, impossible to, to keep this law. But that is, not, that is not the case. That is not Christ's intention with this sermon that he preached. This sermon is for those that are following, that have desired, that have believed in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And now their worldview is transformed and they start to see what is really important. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way into Christ's kingdom is through being poor in spirit, for, through really realizing that you, you have nothing. You don't have the ability to live your life in a way that is really meaningful. You don't have the ability to satisfy yourself in the real way. Every one of us in our heart of hearts knows this. Those that are just starting out, those that are young, maybe your eyes are a little bit blinded by this foolishness. By foolishness to realize that the things that I like to pursue in this life, the plans that I have, really they're, they're only on this level. They're only one level. They will, never let me, they will never let me live life to the fullest the way that it is really meant to be lived. I pray you realize that before it's too late. I pray you realize that you on your own, leading your life on your own way, are not going to be able to satisfy yourself in a real meaningful way. You need to get to, to a point of realizing that you are poor in spirit. You really have nothing. On your own, you, your account, when you look at the, the account of the assets you have spiritually, it's nothing. It's bankrupt. You, you, you can't go anywhere and you can't start anything. Once you realize that, that's part of the entrance to God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you, my fellow brother and sister, this is a great comfort to you. Those moments when you realize that, really, I do have nothing. I'm really, I'm struggling here. Um, it's been a, maybe it's been a difficult day, a difficult week, a difficult month, and I'm struggling maybe spiritually as a believer. I have to realize I am blessed when I realize that I can't do this on my own, that I do not have the spiritual assets, the spiritual uh, wherewithal to provide for myself. I need to throw myself on Christ. There's a progression in these Beatitudes. There's a reason that they are stated in the order that they are. Once you realize that you are poor in spirit, there should come a sense of mourning, a sense of repentance. Blessed are they that mourn. There should be a, a, a real heaviness for realizing just how far you've missed the mark and how much you've hurt, yeah, yourself, yes, others, but how much you've hurt God in the process. The one who, who, who created you, who had such good designs for you, and you completely walked away from it for so many years. You completely missed that. All he had planned for you, a life of, of contentment and joy, and you... You've been missing the boat. That should instill a real sense of mourning, a real sense of, of, of having disappointed the heart of, of, of a being who loves you infinitely. Good news. Once you mourn, once you get to that state of mourning, you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Next, you get to realize what your place is, where God wants you to be. Meekness is not just humility, it's a, it's a realization of your, of your place. It says Moses was the meekest man on earth, the Bible says. Maybe because he had the, one of the greatest positions of authority. He was leading his children out of Egypt, and yet he had that still sense of, of humility, of knowing uh, where he was in God's plan, of not stepping beyond God, and truly he was meek. We need to get to that place too. 
We need to get to the place of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because it's not enough to realize that we're nothing, that we have nothing to advance our uh, true meaningful life. It's not enough to have a heaviness about that in a morning, uh, not enough to realize where our place in the universe, but we have to desire the good. We have to desire the true good. We have to, to move beyond the temporary desire for some entertainment or something that's going to fill a little hole for a little bit, maybe a, um, some diversion, uh, some, an evening with friends or uh, something, a vacation that's coming up or something that will make me look just a little farther down the road in anticipation to realize that I really desire most of all truly is God's righteousness. His truth, the real truth about me, the, the freedom that comes with that. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Once you know that, extending that to others, being merciful, knowing the true truth of what God has done for you, and then living in a way that is full of mercy. Having received mercy, being merciful to others, and the freedom that comes with that. This is a glorious plan for Christ's children. It's exciting when we think that this is the path of blessing. This is what God intends for us. Are we, are we living up to that? Are we living in a way that is uh, experiencing and tasting of that? Or are we closed off? Are the gates of mercy to others shut up? Am I not really hungering for righteousness, God's righteousness? Am I content with cheap things? All of this engenders a purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. All of this allows us to be remade in the image of God, to be sanctified daily as we humble ourselves to realize we're nothing, we mourn over our loss, as we realize our place, as we start to thirst for God's truth and extend that to others. It creates a purity in us, a real purity. And you can see it. You and I know it. We we are all blessed to uh, live with the knowledge or uh, to know other uh, believers, sincere believers that through maybe through dint of, of years of walking with the Lord have been purified in a way that was different than when they first embraced Christ. We can see that. We marvel at it. We're thankful for it. And I hope that in us it kind of makes a tugging for a desire for that too, to, to be sanctified and purified in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The reason the Lord laid this scripture on my heart, chapter 5, and then what we read in verses 38, 39, actually relates to uh, what happened last Sunday. Um, not here with our, within our church with the, the visit of the choir, but uh, it was the 100th anniversary of the of the, um, the end of World War I, and the typical in, in this country, and I think in the U.S. too, a uh, Remembrance Day celebrations. It's always um, an interesting sort of event for me, for all, hopefully for all of us, given our, our, not only our background, but our beliefs. And it, I believe the Holy Spirit prompted me to examine this scripture and examine my own heart. What's my reaction to Remembrance Day and, and the the conversation, as it were, around remembering those who've served in war. 
I think it's no secret, we, uh, in terms of our church doctrine, what we profess about non-resistance, that we, we don't believe it's right for a follower of Jesus Christ to, to take up weapons in a war and to, to seek to, to kill other people. It's based in large part on this, on what we've read here. And uh, it's not an easy doctrine to, to really truly grasp um, on, an, on an intellectual level. It's not a doctrine, I don't think, that can be... We can certainly have um, discussions with other people who don't believe that way and, and um, exchange ideas, but I don't think we will convince other people of the rightness of, of this belief and that it was Jesus' teaching just based on a, a discussion or an argument or bringing up different points of Scripture. It's really an invitational type of doctrine. It's really something that is, is caught and believed by seeing examples of others and seeing ultimately the example of Jesus Christ. It's really something that's arrived at as we embrace these kingdom values, the blesseds, the blessedness of the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, those that are peacemakers. As we understand these values, as we embrace them, believe them, uh, make decisions in our lives based on them, we start to, to realize that this doctrine of non-resistance is not some sort of aberrant um, kind of weird strain of Christianity while we and some other Mennonites seem to share, but it is part of Christ's teaching. It's what he intended. It's not a... Um, let me be clear and, and say that this is not a means to, to judge other Christians that, that don't hold this and to hold them in contempt, contempt and, and to think that... that um, that they are not Christians, they, are, they, will, they will fall and stand according to their own master. But, according, but as the light has been given to us in God's word, we need to uh, make decisions based on that light we've been given. So, Remembrance Day. It's a time of year uh, when acknowledgement of past sacrifice is made. And there is a certain nobility in that. Let's not deny that or discredit that. People have made sacrifices, and, and that needs to be acknowledged and not put aside and, and, um, and denigrated. But we need to see something bigger and higher. We need to see that as Christians, we've been called to love. That's really what the kingdom value is. And no matter how many words or what argument I can frame around this, there is no point at which love will lead me to take another person's life. It really comes down to that. True love will not do that. No matter what that other person believes, no matter even what they are doing to me, true love is self-effacing. It's self-abasing. It's saying the other person is more important than me. It's saying there's hope for the other person. Maybe God will show the light to them. Maybe they'll come to realize that what they're doing is wrong. Maybe even by my example of loving them, they'll be changed. That's what love says. It doesn't make the decision, that's enough for this person. He's had enough. His time has come. Cut him off. You may say, well, love also is for those that I may be trying to protect, right? And that's a difficult one. It's not something we put aside lightly, protection of our families. And I don't believe this doctrine um, abrogates our responsibility to protect our families, but it certainly does not extend to the killing of other people's, uh, other people in that, in that endeavor. We need to trust the God who gave this word, Jesus Christ, who lived this example, 
We need to trust that he knows what he's doing in this very moment as he allows the circumstance, whatever it is, to happen to us and to our families. We need to place our families in his care in, in a real meaningful way. We need to step out in faith and trust that word. Jesus Christ sent his followers out as, as lambs among wolves. Picture that for a moment. Lambs among wolves. What's going to happen? Oh, in an instant. You see, when a predator catches the scent of the prey, they know what's coming. When they smell the blood, it, that lamb does not have long for this world. We are led as sheep to the slaughter, Paul says in Romans 8. Well, he doesn't end that there. He says, no, no, no. Let me just read that. All the things that you could stack up as reasons to take up a sword to, uh, or a gun to defend yourself. Um, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. All these different things, different circumstances where you would be tempted, where you'd think the natural thing here is to take force. I need to solve the problem uh, by force. He says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And he says, nay, no. In all these things, in these things, in the difficulties, in the tribulations, in the instances where we would want to take force, he says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities. The big picture here, am I seeing the big picture in this? this? This political climate, maybe, that's lending the nation towards war, that's pushing us all towards uh, an armed response because of the, the obvious evil of our neighbor. This circumstance, there's a bigger picture here. There's principalities and powers. There's angels. There, is spirit, there are spiritual beings that are beholding this now. Am I going to be more than a conqueror through Christ in this? Am I going to choose the, the Matthew chapter 5 way of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, resist not evil, love your neighbor, love your enemies. Am I going to choose that way and, and have the experience of real true victory or Christ or am I going to choose the sword? Nothing will be able to set me, separate me from the love of God. Some people read that and say, nothing. See, end of story. There is no way that a believer can, can lose their salvation. But I would say to you, when you depart from the love of God, when your response to other people departs from the love of God, you have departed from the love of God. You are now separated from the love of God. When you are not willing to extend that love to another person, you are drawing back from the love of God and separating yourself from him. I believe these beatitudes, these kingdom values, what is important, if we live them and really believe them, we become the salt of the earth. We become the light. We become that, that example that is so different than other people. That response that just people take a step back and, and wonder, why are you responding this way? That is not the typical response. That is not the natural response. 
This enables us to be the real salt and light and, and the candle that is set on a candlestick. When we uh, restrict ourselves and think that, that Christ does not want to be does not want us to be as radical as he is pushing us to be at this instant, our witness, I think, is dimmed. Our, our light gets a little dimmer. This teaching in verse 38 on non-resistance. It follows a pattern. The, the first, Matthew chapter 5, the, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ takes an example from the Old Testament. He says, You have heard that it hath been said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you. So he takes a teaching from the Old Testament, and then based really on his own authority, but I say unto you, he extends it. He shows the true meaning behind it, the true purpose of it, and the true fulfillment of it. And by doing that, he shows us as his followers, this is what he wants for us. So in this teaching on non-resistance, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is uh, in the the Levitical law, that's in the law of Moses, that would constrain um, retribution for crimes or things that happened. So when someone did something to someone else, maybe injured them in a fight or something, the law said now that other person can, can uh, have some punishment exacted on them. Not above measure, but according to measure. I'm not sure at this moment exactly what the Levitical law said regarding that, whether it was a fine that had to be paid or or some, some sort of other physical punishment. But that's what Christ was highlighting. He said, you've heard that it has been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Well, lest we just take that and run with it, we need to resist evil in the right way. We need to stand up for what is right and true and good. We need to speak truth. Look at Christ in the temple overturning the money changers' tables, scattering those that, that, that were using God's house as a merchandise house. He, he had no time for that and no softness and soft words. It was action. He, he did things on behalf and with the zeal of his father's house in mind. As his disciples remembered later, the zeal of my father's house has eaten me up. So Christ did resist evil. What Christ is saying here is don't resist evil on the same plane. Don't respond in kind with kind. If someone hits you, you need to hit them back. That's not the way of Christ. You resist that evil, but in a different way. You resist it with love. He says, when in Romans 12, I believe, when someone does something evil to you, you return good to them. And in so doing, you heap coals of fire on their head. You're resisting that evil, but you're resisting it in a, a different way. This discussion of non-resistance, this, this doctrine of non-resistance, I think a lot of times for us exists just on the plane of not taking a weapon or saying, well, I'm not going to fight. Uh, when, if they, I, I ever get conscripted to the army, I, I'd rather go to prison than take a, a weapon and leave it at that. It is so much more than that. And if it just resides there, if it's just that's the application of the scripture, we have fallen so far short, far short and in that day of, t of, of trial, we will, not, uh, we will not be effective witnesses. This doctrine of non-resistance applies to our everyday interactions with each other in the church and outside. It applies when something evil, something wrong is done to us. What's my first reaction? Is it going to be, 
I want to give them a little taste of their own medicine. Just, you know, you hurt me a little bit. You need to see a little bit. It's for your own good. You need to see a little bit of, of how much you've hurt me, and I'm going to hurt you back. Is that, is that the mindset that we fall into? Is, are we ever tempted to think that way? I am, I confess, many times. That's my first reaction. Thanks be to God. Many times I take a step back from that and realize, no, that's not what Jesus wants for me. That's not how he wants me to respond. He wants me to respond in love. Even something like driving, that's another, an area of weakness for me. Those that, of you that know, that have traveled with me in a car. Um, driving defensively, sometimes I interpret that mean as defending your lane. Wow, it's not really that, right? We need to have courtesy, simple common courtesy to people that we may never speak to, that are completely in another car that will just drive by. We need to, to respect them, right? When, something does, when someone does something um, aggressive and shocking to us, gives a rude gesture to us maybe, or something like that, what's my first reaction? Okay, if it's my first reaction, just leave it there. Take a step back from it. Think about what does Christ want me to, to think about this person? This whole process of non-resistance, of not returning evil for good, is a process by which we become more like God. It's just this way. There's not another um, monastic holiness, hiding yourself away in a cave somewhere. We become more like God as we share his goodness with people regardless of what they do to us. That's how he ended chapter 5 of Matthew. Your father causes his son and his reign to fall and shine on the on the on the evil and on the good. Be perfect like your Father in heaven. Christ really does want us to be different. The pattern of this world, within the, with their own families, among their own friends, you often see a lot of good times, a lot of warmth, a lot of care, uh, things that are good, not things that we should look down on and think, oh, that's, you know, uh, uh, something wrong. But we need to be different. If you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? We need to live in a different way, a way that goes beyond and above the typical, let's get together and have a good time with people that are like us, that, that we get along easily with. Christ is calling us. He's calling me to something different. He's calling me to, to love that boss that is difficult, the, the froward boss, um, the coworker that may be doing nasty things to me behind my back or other people. He's calling me to love them in a, in a real, um, a compelling way, something that, that is not showy or ostentatious, but something that will touch their heart. And that's where God's spirit needs to speak to you in every circumstance, to, to know that thing. Uh, God's spirit needs to work to open up to show you that opportunity to extend a kind word, to do something nice for someone who is, who's really out to get you, someone who doesn't like you for whatever reason. This doctrine of non-resistance is tied to the kingdom values we read about, the blesseds, the beatitudes. 
if we are to experience the victory and the joy of, of Christ's kingdom, the security of being his children, of having that blessedness, we need to embrace all of his teaching, even the things that are not popular in, in mainstream or wider stream Christianity. Not in a spirit of, of judgmentalness or looking down on others, but in a spirit of looking at Christ, being so consumed with his example. For my friend outside of Christ, this teaching may seem um, unattainable, something that's difficult to, to, uh, to grasp, but I would submit to you again that this is invitational. As you behold Christ, as you study him, as you read his words, as you look at his example, the spirit of Christ, if you let it, the spirit of God will work in you to, to make Christ attractive, to make Christ the most beautiful being that you could behold. His actions, all the things that he did, he will lead your heart to a way of delighting in what he said and what he taught. And in doing that, in, in that transformation, you will embrace this doctrine. You'll embrace this in a, in a full-hearted, real, uh, true way. As you see how attractive Christ is, how beautiful he is in his example, in all his example. My prayer for all of us this morning hour is that we would take these words to heart, that we would not be uh, stymied or taken aback when the world at large has uh, these sort of celebrations, the, the November 11th sort of remembrance day, that we would have the right response to acknowledge, yes, on a certain plane, those are noble actions that one would give their lives for their comrades, uh, would, would die for the nation, would protect the homeland, etc., etc. But the homeland is passing. Another hundred years, this country may not exist. Uh, your family uh, will soon uh, will grow, grow, grow old. Time will pass. People will pass away. What is eternal? What really matters? Your soul, your eternal soul, my eternal soul, your response to this kingdom now, that man that's walking down the street, his soul, where, is he, where he is going, and the means to touch his soul is by embracing all the, uh, of the teaching of Christ, not pushing any of it aside, not denigrating any of it, living it out and, and ho holding on to it with everything we have in a, in a true way. Particularly with World War I, you realize that that same thing happened on a bigger scale not more than 20 years later. All those deaths, all of those sacrifices, all those maimings, the, the, the individuals that were gassed, that, that uh, couldn't breathe properly again for the rest of their lives, that the prime of young manhood, it was all for nothing. 20 years later, the same thing happened again. The British Empire, where is it now? It's, it's one of the nations of Europe, soon not to be, probably. Where, is, where are those kings, those, those emperors that brought Europe to war within a matter of weeks, just based on their say-so? Did no one take a step back from that and see, well, what does Jesus have to say in all of this? My prayer for you and I is that we realize this now, today, not just when the moment comes when if our nation ever goes to war or um, if some armed conflict happens, but we realize this now and today. What does Jesus want my response to be? 
to the evil that I face every day. May the Lord add to his word what was lacking. Um, may he help us to see clearly and give us the desire to, to hold on to his word above all else. My mind goes back to what happened in India when India got their independence from the British Empire. Mahatma Gandhi was a lawyer that went to South Africa for his studies and he saw the plight there and he studied what is the best way to deal with conflict. And what would be the best way for India to gain their independence from, from the British Empire? He read the Beatitudes. He believed in the teachings of Jesus Christ of non-resistance. It was with these beliefs that he resisted retaliating with brute force against the British and there was one particular incident when the British came with their horses, cavalry, and the Indians decided to lie down on the ground in the roadway, knowing that even horses will not trample on men. God's creation would not trample on a man that's lying down. So he won with non-resistance, independence. I think it was back in 1948 or so. And the reward for that was that he got shot. He was assassinated by someone who felt that he didn't do enough for India between the Hindus and the Muslims. Peter writes in his first epistle, and you can see how a great a student Peter was. You can just see that the teachings that he remembered from his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he writes... Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rested upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. To love your enemies so that you may show that you are the children of your Father 
you have the characteristics of your Father, that you have love and peace, and you don't seek vengeance. That's what Jesus was. Though he was reviled and, and, and mistreated and abused, he opened not his mouth. I pray that this be the testimony of each and every one of us. And when we have not been as meek as sheep, as meek as the Lord wants us to be, that we would repent of that. And we would seek to be that true light and the salt of the earth as he intended us to be. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.